0: Father God, I've already prayed this morning, but I'm asking again, please let this time be serious to us. Please help us. Uh, we may not physically see you, the fact that we are able to come anywhere near you, to have any kind of association with you, is because of Jesus and what he has done. This morning, I pray that we would see that. distant way but that we would know how serious a thing it is to be in your presence and to be allowed in your presence we don't belong here and i pray that that's what you would, you would show us no matter how sure we think we are as Christians, I pray that you would really show us this morning that we don't left Um, I'll ask that one more time just in case we're still getting caught up this one what are some titles that you ascribe to Jesus Christ I'll give you an example and this is probably one that everybody could kind of think of um, one title that Christians give to Jesus is Savior so that, that would be kind of the example So you had a second. What are some titles that you give, that you ascribe to Jesus? Like maybe the first thing that pops into your mind. Huh? Healer. Healer. Okay. Emmanuel. Say that again. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. You're tracking with my prayer. Others. Prince of Peace. You king King say, <laughs> the same line. Trump's yours. <laughs> Sorry. Many people call him teacher. Teacher, that's true. Yeah, a lot of people, even people who didn't believe necessarily who Jesus was, they still said, okay, this guy is smart. He knows his stuff. We can call him teacher. Uh, the Pharisees did that. What about Tanner kind of knows where I'm going already, but you don't have to. Oh, don't ruin it say that again yeah that's true (laughs) yeah if you're already in Hebrews there you go Um, high priest I don't think that's a title that immediately jumps to the mind of most people like high priest oh Jesus is my high priest that's not the way that you think of him first When, when, when somebody says the name of Jesus I don't think that you necessarily link him to that role first that true of you guys, or is it just me that kind of, it, it doesn't really think of him primarily as being a high priest? I kind of thought that that was the case um, just because of our culture. Um, the reasons for this, you know, could be many, and I'm not sure what, what they all are, but it, it seems like the easiest answer is just that we aren't Jews, and we aren't living under the Mosaic Covenant, and we aren't Catholic. I think that if we're Catholics, maybe you do think Jesus is high priest, like, immediately. Because the priesthood is so much a part of their church and their their kind of infrastructure of what they do. They they talk to a priest on a regular basis, and they use that term priest. So, we being Protestants, not in the first century Judaism, I don't think that we, we, we use that term primarily to describe Jesus, but... As we move through Hebrews, we're going to be presented with Jesus as our High Priest. It's going to be—he's going to develop this. Uh, he's going to spend a lot of time with this. So I think it would be helpful, even necessary, for us to have a good frame of reference for understanding what that means, what it means for Jesus to be a High Priest. Um, we have up to this point covered the first four chapters of the Book of Hebrews. Um, I'm going i am going to go back and. and and started Hebrews 4:14 4, this morning, but we've already seen a couple of instances, actually three different references so far to Jesus being the high priest. You can find those in Hebrews 2:17 and 18. I'll go ahead and read them. Hebrews 2:17 and 18. And I forgot to mention this, but I, we brought some extra Bibles this morning. It looks like everybody's got something. But if you don't have a Bible, we have some extras back. I, I was foolish and didn't look at the page number to see where it's at. But Hebrews, I think it's like 650 or something. Um, so if you need one, go grab right one. But Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 mention Jesus as a high priest. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You also see it And at the beginning of chapter 3, in verse 1 there, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then you see it again in Hebrews 4, which Tanner was preaching last week. So we've seen this several times. When I was preaching in chapter 2 and 3, I kind of held off on Jesus as high priest, knowing that Hebrews was going to spend a lot of time on it later. So I even said during those weeks, hey, I'm not going to devote a lot of time towards this because we're going to wait. We're going to let it sit. We're going to tease this out, and uh, we'll look at that more in detail. So today is kind of the beginning of this. The author of Hebrews focuses, for the most part, chapters 5 all the way through to 10 on Jesus' high priest. So you're going to have a lot of time to think about this. If you didn't think about Jesus' high priest, up until this point, then you probably will after a couple months, because this is this is a huge idea in Hebrews. It devotes, Hebrews devotes more of its content to developing Jesus as high priest than any other book in the New Testament. Um, some people have even called Hebrews the epistle of priesthood, because it's been so much time developing this topic. So as we move the next through the next several chapters, I'm hoping that we learn a lot about this. But before we get into all the details of Hebrews, I want to make sure that we're caught up with kind of the basic concept of a high priest. Because if we don't understand what a high priest is, then you're going to struggle to understand why you need one in the first place and why Jesus is unique. So I feel like it's important that we do that. Here's the deal. You and I were not the First intended audience For this epistle Now I I wholeheartedly believe that If if we claim Christ Then this is written to Christians And we treat it As as, uh, Paul tells Timothy We treat this as though it is God breathed As though it is the word of God And that it's profitable for us However, what's the title of this book? Hebrews, easy. For you. Whoever was normal, a to a scholar. Hebrews, are you, to your awareness, a Jew? No. Are you more particularly a Jew in the first century A.D.? No. So when when the author here talks about high priest, he doesn't devote a chapter to explaining. What a high priest is He just says high priest And he expects them to know Just kind of the same way that He's gone on in several other earlier passages And said somewhere it's been said You know And he expects them to draw on this wealth of information And say oh I know who said that David said that And it's prophetic Here he just starts talking about Jesus as a high priest So if you come to it And you don't know what that that means then you faces. If you don't know what that means, then, then it's it's kind of lost on us. So I want to make sure that we devote some time to this. It would be like if somebody started talking about the President of the United States to us, but if they had started talking about that, let's say 500 years ago, let's say that then then whoever was reading it at the time would be like, I have no idea. But for us, we understand it is Oh, well, we've had so many presidents over the course of hundreds of years, and you might even call to mind, oh, this one, and this one, and this one, you can see one alive right now on TV, it draws all these kinds of images and thoughts in our minds, it does the same thing for the Hebrews who are listening to this, they're drawing all this information. So I want to go back and try to figure out what a high priest is, what he does, why he does it, why it's important for us you know your Bible really well, this might be kind of a review for you, but I'm hoping that the truths of this still hit home, and that they still hit you in, in your heart and in your mind, and that you can react to these things, because these are very, very important things. So, to understand the role of high priest, the first thing that I'm going to do, and you could probably go about this a lot of different ways, but what I'm going to do is try to establish the relationship of humans to God first, because that's important. To do this, I think that it's best to start at the beginning, the very beginning. Genesis 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have to know who God is. God created everything, He created everything in the universe, including men. That's Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And in doing so, in creating everything, he created everything good. That's Genesis 1.31, right at the end of that chapter. I'll just read it because I don't have that one in my mind. Well, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So, God is creator, he created everything, and he created everything. However, it wasn't too long before Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that they could and perhaps ought to become like God. Tragically and literally, they were dead wrong. They disobeyed God directly, and in doing so, they, they earned the punishment of death. It sounds harsh, because God just says, don't eat this tree, and they they eat the tree, and then he says, okay, that's it, mankind forever is doomed to death. That sounds harsh, but it it makes good logical sense, because think about it, God is, he is the author of life. He creates everything, and he creates it good, and that's mentioned several times throughout the Bible, Acts 3.15 talks about Jesus being the author of life. Psalm 36, 9 talks about God being the source of life and everything. Verse 76, 13 says the same kind of thing. So God is the author of life. He's the source of it. So if you rebel against that, then what's the opposite of that? Death. So you, by, by rebelling against God who, who, who offers everything and gives life to everything by saying, I don't want that. You are naturally kind of inviting the opposite. You're inviting death. So, to some people who, who are kind of new to this message, it sounds harsh, but it makes sense. And God is just, so he demands that justice be done. and He punishes this kind of rebellion with death. He essentially says, this is what you want, this is what you deserve, this is what you will get. And he is fair in doing so. So, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, he cursed all of creation to suffer the effects of sin, and he also did two things that I think are significant, very significant, regarding our discussion about Jesus being a high priest. And this is not, what I'm about to share is not something that I have picked up from other people. So, I'm worried about being in a minority, um, in a minority viewpoint. I don't think I'm gonna say anything crazy. However, this is me interpreting things in a way that I think is significant. Okay. So, two things that God does after they sin that I think is significant with regard to that: Setting up this idea of the high priest. One, He provides clothes for them. You can see this uh, in Genesis 3, uh, 21. So if you you want to bring that up. And sorry, I I disappointed Dale, I know, because he said and I agree that it's helpful to have these things on screen, but man, I got lost in studying on this one. So I apologize. I'll try to do better in the future. But Genesis 3, 21 talks about this. They sin and God has already gone through and cursed. Creation, the man, the woman, the snake, the serpent that deceived them. And in verse 21 it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He doesn't use cotton. Not at all. He makes coats of animal skins for them. And he does this because after they sinned, they felt this. It made a point of saying that they were naked and not ashamed before the fall. They had nothing to hide. They were, everything was perfect. They didn't need clothes. I assume conditions were perfect. Maybe you don't get sunburned. Maybe their skin was better. Um, maybe you're not walking around and everything's thorny, so you're not afraid of getting cut. There's not rocky ground. Who knows? I don't know. But for whatever reason, they didn't need these clothes, and that was cool, and it was fine. Everything was perfect, but they sinned, and then they said, wow, this is not working. I need something to cover me so God is the one who takes these animal skins and makes clothes for them and I think that that's significant I don't think that that is at all unintentional it doesn't spell out how God went about doing this and And God is spirit, so it's... Again, this is interpretive of me. But... So so don't don't go crazy with this. This is not the verses, spelling this out. But skin coats don't usually come from animals that are still alive. Now, yeah, he could have just said, proof out of nothing, here are some skin coats for you. But I'm not sure... What purpose that would serve? Try not to lose myself. My guess is that he killed that animal to provide a to support. I don't think that in doing so he sins. He kills this animal, even though he could have fashioned. Clothes from the kind of stuff that we wear, like cotton, because just as cotton doesn't just happen, animal skins don't just happen. Like, have you ever seen an animal being skinned? It is pretty horrific. Uh, and we we're not farmers, so you know I think that this this maybe can kind of hit us in a way that maybe it doesn't hit agricultural kind of societies that have flocks and sheep and that sort of thing. Because we're far removed for the most part from skinning animals and that sort of thing. Cody's not, Cody's not here. <clears throat> I feel like this had to have been scarring for them. Like they came from profession. And yeah, they were promised that, hey, now that you have sinned, you are going to die. But now how God maybe, and, I, and again, this is interpretive, but, but God maybe illustrates this by killing this animal and skinning it to provide clothes for them. And can you imagine like, the horror that's in the mind of Adam, who hasn't seen anything wrong ever happen except the fact that he ate this fruit and disobeyed God, and now has a messed up, distorted view of everything that's around him. Now God comes up and says, "You need to be clothed," and so He brings up this animal. He doesn't say what kind, but He kills it. And I can't imagine just kind of the psychological effect that must have had on the animal. It isn't spelled out here that the animal was killed as a sacrifice, and I don't want to try to make it say that. But I think that the killing of the animal after their sin, on their behalf, is more than coincidence. There's some proximity here. They sinned, let me kill this animal and give you its skin because you need to be clothed. I think that it's possible that God explained to them that death was a necessary consequence of their sin but that the life of the animal would be taken rather than theirs. They were still promised death. He still said, hey, you're going to die. But this animal dies to clothe them. In addition to the close proximity of the animal being killed on their behalf as a result of their sin, I think it's also important to note that Adam's son, Abel, later offers animal sacrifices to God. Who told him? I think that this would be a very odd thing to do if you had not been instructed to do so. Again, this is interpretive. I keep saying this is interpretive. Disclaimer. These are things to chew on. I don't know. Think about it. You go grab the best goat out of your flock, slit its throat, cut it up into pieces, put it on a large stone, set it on fire, and say, This one's for you, God. That sounds deranged if it has no meaning or purpose. Unless you've been shown that the whole activity has a reason and an incredible weight to it, I mentioned Abel, Cain and Abel, right? They're the sons of Adam and Eve, and we're not really explaining why they brought sacrifice, why they brought these offerings. It actually calls them offerings, but they come up and they bring these offerings to God, and and Cain brings fruit to the ground because he he works the ground, and Abel brings an animal. And God favor on unable because he brought the, the best of his flock, this animal, to God. And he tries to instruct Canaan and, said, and he says, Why is your face downcast? Don't let sin come after you. If you do well, then it will go well for you. This, this kind of animal sacrifice, it's interesting that we see it so early. So early. It's mentioned many times. Before we get to Mount Sinai, where God specifically instructs Moses regarding animal sacrifices. Noah, Abraham, Moses' father-in-law, jethro they're all mentioned. There's others, but those specifically are mentioned as having given animal sacrifices, specifically burnt offerings of animals, to God. I think that it's possible that God may have shown... So that's important, they sin, this animal dies, they are given skin, and the second thing that happens, once they're clothed, uh, Genesis three twenty-four. he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life, so once he made skin coats for Adam and Eve, he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. They were removed from God's presence. They couldn't stay there because their sins separated them from God. They could no longer approach God freely because the nature of their relationship had been utterly changed. It was broken. And here's where it becomes personal. We inherited that situation. It was passed on to everyone in history. So we inherit that situation, that sinfulness, and that separation from God. We're born with their sin nature, and so we, you and I, are separated from God ourselves. So, I feel like that's really significant. I I think that it's kind of cool that I've gotten to preach about it. I've had that thought kind of stewing for a long time. And again, some verses spelling this out, but I, I, I feel like I cannot be intimidated. It cannot be intimidated that this happened uh, in the garden or outside. So, skip forward a few thousand years to the exit. God is performing some once-in-an-eternity miracles before the Israelites and the Egyptians in order to show everybody that He is Lord, that He's in charge over all creation. He's making good on His promise to Abraham, which, had, uh, which He had given to Abraham over 400 years prior to that, when He said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of nations. He said that, Abraham, your descendants... Are going to inherit the beautiful land of Canaan. It's going to be fruitful. It's going to be profitable. It's going there's going to be rest there for you. And that's in Exodus uh, six two through eight. So let's um, I want to go ahead and read that Exodus six two through eight because this is God um, making this promise to them, making, telling them about how He's going to bring them out. So I turn to Judges. Exodus 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, Whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, and he's talking to Moses, say to them, I am the Lord, he mentions his name. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So what's happening here? He's re- he's, he's coming to get there. Thousands of years prior, Adam and Eve, they sinned, he he clothes them, he he lets them know everything is cursed now, and he casts them out. He says, you cannot be here anymore. And the presence that they had enjoyed with God was disrupted, and they were sent out, and things got bad. Um, People continued to sin more and more and more. But he makes promises along the way to several people. To Noah, he says, "I'm going to, re- I'm going to save you and your family." He, he makes promises to Abraham. He says, "You're going to have a nation of descendants, and I'm going to bring you into this land. You're going to be my people." And then he has a kid. They they multiply into millions of people, but they're slaves under Egypt. And now God is saying, "I made a promise to your dad a long, long, long time ago, and now I'm going to make good on that promise." I'm going to bring you into my presence. I'm going to bring you back. So the Exodus, the whole book of Exodus, is a massive component of of God working through history to bring people back to himself. If if you're familiar with it, you're probably drawn to all the miracles that God performed. the burning bush where he talked to Moses the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea all kinds of amazing things. Those miracles are unquestionably awesome. Very very cool things that have never happened before or since. And they should be remembered and, and God should be praised for them. But within our present discussion it's important to think of the Exodus again as God welcoming back the chosen people into his presence. Humans have been driven out. Now he's restoring a relationship. It's not something that they could do. They had no authority to do it. He could. So, after he pulls them out of Exodus, Exodus, out of Egypt, by doing many miracles, he leads them to Mount Sinai. After rescuing them, and he immediately shows them and us that though He wants to bring us back, our sinfulness is still a huge problem. When they approach approach the mountain, so He says, come to this mountain, we're going to have a little chit-chat. So they get to the mountain, and He's saying beforehand, prepare. You need to wash up, you need to get ready. Act as though this is serious, because it is. So they wash up, they get ready, they get to this mountain, and it's literally covered in flames and smoke. And there's this thundering, trumpeting noise that they have a hard time even standing, tolerating. Can you, can you imagine? And they've, seen, they've seen incredible things, but it just keeps going. And he says, you're going to come to me. And I'm going, to sh- I'm going to show up on this mountain and meet you. And when they get there, they are afraid. They're afraid. Why, why would God want to make them afraid? Why, why do that? You can answer it a Fear of the Lord is beginning. The beginning of wisdom, wisdom. It's true one of the most common adjectives for God in the Bible, if not the most common i am forgetting all my Bible truth facts is that God is holy so God is doing something huge by saying come back come back, I'm going to make you a people I'm going to bring you back into my presence but, like I said, there's still this huge lingering problem, when they approach him, he wants to establish the fact that, listen yes I am bringing you back but you don't just walk up to me as though you've earned this as though we are eye to eye now as though you still don't have a heart full of sin because they they show up and they're afraid and God specifically says do not touch the mountain because if you do you will die this is serious and he says, Moses, come up here. <laughs> and Moses says, okay, going up. When he gets up God talks to him for a long time. A long time. I can't remember exactly, so correct me if I'm wrong, audibly. But I think it's something like a month and a half. Like, it's, it's a while. He's up there for a long time. And most people think that, that Moses was the one who authored the first five books of the Bible, the stuff involving creation and all these things. Um, and it's probably, and he had multiple meetings with God afterwards, so he could have, he shared multiple things. But one of the primary things that God did when Moses was up here was he said, okay, here we are, you and me, me and this people that I brought out here You are going to be my people. I want to live among you. I want to restore my presence with you. But massive list of stipulations, massive. Think of the iTunes user agreement. (laughs) You've never read it because it's 80 pages long. that just popped into my head. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he says, you can't, you can't just come up here. This. Is, I want to be your God. You can be my people, but you're still sinful. So here's how this is going to work. The Ten Commandments. You're probably aware of the Ten Commandments. It starts there, but then it gets into a lot more detail. Um, I don't have time to do this, but if you want to start reading Exodus 19 in your own study... And you want to just go as long as you can stand it, if you can make it through all Leviticus, then you'll get an idea I'm not trying to down Leviticus, I'm just telling you that it is a lot of rules, and the one thing that you learn when you read all that is man, God is very choosy he is particular about a lot of things and the one thing that you learn by reading through that is that God is whole and that is one thing that keeps getting emphasized over and over. God says, be holy, because I am holy. And if you're going to be my people, then you have to live up to a standard. You can't just walk up here. So again, if you want to study that on your own, you can start at Exodus 19, where they're approaching the mountain, and then all several, several chapters, a book and a half later, kind of get to the end of, of these laws. That's a lot more, actually. The whole Pentateuch is, is, um, is law. Essentially, that's why they call it the works of the law. Um, but that will help you kind of appreciate God's holiness. One of the things that he, he talks about when they get up there is this idea of priesthood. And this is very important, with this concept of, of God's presence and these animal sacrifice. He institutes an official priesthood for Israel. It's interesting that there are priests before Israel. We'll get to that. Tanner specifically will have plenty of time to talk about that. Um, in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Um, there are priests, but God is very specific about saying, here's how we're going to do this. I want you to offer sacrifices. I want you to give tithes. I want you to do so many things where you are going to come to me and offer things to me because you are sinful and and that cannot pass because i am just because death is a result of sin you are going to have to put to death animals as sacrifices to me and again it seems odd but death is this is a result of sin and he's and he's saying that this sacrifice is an atonement Atonement, meaning like a, a restoration, a reconciliation. This this animal will accept the punishment. Well, it will receive the punishment instead of him. And he's given all kinds of specifications. Can't even begin to go through it. about how those sacrifices are going to be carried out. They offer them daily, multiple sacrifices daily at the temple. Before God And the, only, the people who were set apart to do it Were the priests they, they brought the animals And all these different things Grains and fruits and oils And all kinds of different sacrifices And offerings And they accepted it from the people And then they took it in front of God And that was their role God said normal average Joe Cannot walk up here I was trying to think of a really common Jewish name Hi. Hi. Average, <laughs> oh, I was thinking average Yeshua. Not Jesus, but maybe Joshua. Um, cannot just come up here and start offering sacrifices. This certain sect of people, the priests, are in charge of this. And if anybody else even tries to walk up here, they're dead. It's serious. And beyond that, even, beyond this, this group of priests, he institutes something called a high priest. This is Aaron. It starts with Aaron, Moses' brother. And he says, Aaron is going to be the high priest, the greatest among his brothers of priests. And he is going to come before me once a year. This was specifically the most important part of his role. Once a year. You can read about this in Leviticus 16, which Tanner actually talked about last week, I think. He said, hey, go do your homework. Read Leviticus 16. So if you've read that already, then you get enough, you've get already got a picture. If not, go read this. I won't read it all here. I don't even know if I'll read any of it. I'm going to set, set it up. But go read that as well. And if you're already reading through Exodus Leviticus, go ahead. But it talks about specifically the Day of Atonement, one day a year, where this high priest is going to come to the, the temple and offer sacrifices for everybody. And it's not just individuals. Individuals were told, bring your sacrifices to God. But on this one day, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, where only he could go. And he would offer a sacrifice for everyone. And this was his most important job. And it, just like everything else, had a lot of specifications. Again. Dude could not just roll up into the Holy of Holies and say, Here's the blood. He had to make specific preparations. It actually says, I'll I'll read one section of Leviticus 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil the mercy seat that is the, on the ark, so that he may not die. So get this, so you got millions of people, the Israelites, are being represented by a small group of people, the priests, before God. And then among that small number of priests, you've got one man that is operating on behalf of the entire nation. So you would think that he is it, right? He's important, and he was. He wasn't just this one day a week guy or or one-day-a-year guy, but he also was a teacher for them and a leader. And you would think he's important, but God says, no, no, you don't just come in here. If you walk in here uninvited, you will die. This this is very serious. Leviticus 16 spells out what what was going to happen on the day of atonement, what they needed to do if they deviated from that they would die. There are instances of priests, Eli's sons I even Aaron's sons die because they just kind of treat this flippantly. so they see death as a result of just saying we'll, we'll, we'll try to make this good for us. It's not about you, it's about God. So you've got all these regulations, all these stipulations Uh, chapter 21 of Leviticus lists out even the regulations for the high priest the way that it worked was the high priest had to be a descendant of Aaron so again you've got this one guy representing the whole nation of Israel and he served as far as I can tell for a lifetime until he died but it couldn't just be any son of Aaron it had to be, even within that family, it had to be a specific they had to have specific qualities he had to be... He had to maintain himself a certain way. Like even the way that they cut their hair. He was specific about the way that they had to cut their hair or not cut their hair. He was specific about the way that... They, who they married. And... and how they acted. Um... Let's see. I'm gonna read a section of this. Just because this... It really it really hits on with me. Um, 21, verse 16 and 17. I'm reading this because to me it seems personal. I want it to be personal to you, even though know it might not be personal in the same way. So, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who have, has a blemish may, off, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who's been, who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles sorry it happened <laughs> no man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering since he has a blemish he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God so and this is talking about a specific instance where he's dealing with food but still it's saying listen Not only is it just this little group of priests, not only is it just the family of Aaron, not only is it just the family of Aaron, it's specific people who have specific qualities within the family of Aaron. You you probably think of the fact that when they gave sacrifices, they were supposed to give their best. So if an animal, I would say without spot or blemish, that's the kind of sacrifice that they had to bring forward. And the high priest can't come to God (laughs) if he has spots, blemishes. Now, I think of stuff like this this birthmark, and that might seem really weird, but you're talking about like a spot on a sheep. Like it had to be like a pure white sheep. So, honestly, this has seemed kind of personal to me because, and I know that that's weird, but also it talks about itching diseases, and I know that you don't want to hear this sort of thing, but I've got eczema as a result of food allergies, so I've got like this dry skin on my fingers, and it itches, and it sucks, and, and it causes my hands to itch, and And I read that, and I'm thinking, man, I'm out. I'm done. Not just because I'm sinful, but because of the way I am. (laughs) Like, because of how I'm ordered and made, and how my body's screwed up. I, I could not do this wrong. And yeah, I'm not even the son of Aaron. But even if I was, even if you were, it wouldn't work for you. You would have been told, sorry, not you the reason that I kind of bring that up is because I think that one thing that you learn when you read Exodus and Leviticus is that we are unacceptable to God. And and Paul makes a big point of that when he starts talking about the law in the New Testament. He says, listen, the law does one thing really, really well. It shows you how much you deserve death." That's, that's the way that Paul talks about the law. So when you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you get a sense of, man, that is not me. That is not me. And I hope that, you know, you might, you might not feel kin to the one son of Aaron who, who got rejected as high priest. But I think that if you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you can definitely see that saying, man, that is not me. I. I I have not lived up to that I can't live up to that the people like me like you, even the priest himself needed the high priest it's weird to say that the priest needed the priest, he needed himself to do this role because this law pointed out that they were all condemned to die and that they needed somebody to go in front of God and to say, we have sinned. We are imperfect. We deserve death. But you have told us that you will accept this sacrifice on behalf of us. They, they, they present it before God. And, and in performing that, this high priest acts as a mediator. Here's the big word, mediator. Between those people, the Israelites, and God. So that, if you, even if you don't think high priest, you can start thinking of high priest as mediator. It was required for us, for sinful people, to have a mediator, someone who would go between us and God, to offer these sacrifices, to represent us. And to atone for our sins. And you desperately need. It. Now, I, I always feel this. I always feel like I can't properly communicate how heavy this, how heavy these ideas are. And I definitely feel this way. I don't think that I can I can communicate how heavy this idea is. And I pray that the Holy Spirit does for you. Communicate how heavy this idea is. You need this mediator. Because without this sacrifice, you don't have a time. You don't have forgiveness over your sins. You still stand condemned. And that's everybody. So, going back to Hebrews. I don't to spend a whole lot of time doing today. Feel the weight of it now when we read Hebrews 5. Uh, we'll start in 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who is passed through the heavens. Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think that this is particularly interesting. The you think about all these stipulations, all the fact that all the rules that the high priest had for approaching God in the temple, the temple made with human hands. On a cursed earth, being presented by a cursed human being, this sacrifice being presented by a cursed high priest. You think about him approaching God in that situation and how broken the situation really is. Hebrews later talks about it as a shadow of things to come. It's an imperfect resemblance of what's to come. That was serious. And that deserved death if they took it flippantly. But, but now, It's telling us, not just one of us as high priests, every one of us, in verse 16, let us then, since Christ is our high priest, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We're not approaching God inside of a temple made with human hands, at an ark made by human hands, on a cursed earth, being represented by a cursed man, you're drawing near to the throne, like God in heaven, where it says Jesus is. Earlier in Hebrews, it says, reference. Hebrews 1, verse 13, where he's um, quoting Psalm 10, he says, sit at my right hand. God tells Jesus, "Sit at my right hand." So when you approach the throne, you're approaching Father God, Creator of everything. How much more serious? How much more holy is that situation? And it's and the author of Hebrews is saying, "We, not we as high, not we beings the sole high priest, but we at any given point in time approach God with confidence and receive grace, mercy." help. Because Christ is our mediator. Because Christ offered sacrifice for us and he lives eternally at the right hand of God and now we benefit from that. He is our mediator. We we needed him. We have him. And I think that that's why in verse 14 he says, since we have a great heart, He goes on and on saying, you have a high priest, you have a high priest. But then in 14, he's saying, since then, you have a great high priest. It's not just some high priest, but the greatest high priest. Let's hold this confession. I'm not going to get into all the details of the rest of this chapter. I'm going to come back and do it again. We didn't even read. We didn't even get into five but I to give it was important to set up kind of the basics of the high priest because we're going to go on talking about very specific aspects of the high priest's ministry moving forward so I wanted to build that understanding and for us to really feel like we need a mediator because we inherited that sinfulness from Adam and Eve we were born with We were separated from God, just like they were. And when God said, you have to get out of here, he told that to us. And we inherited that. And now, through Jesus, he's saying, come back. But the only reason we're able to is because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus, again, the theme for Hebrews is better. He is our better high priest. We don't have a high priest same way the Israelites did, we have a better that allows us to draw close to God with confidence. I feel like this is comforting because he goes back and forth in Hebrews between saying pay attention, don't drift away, hold this confidence, and then he'll said that at the beginning of of chapter 2, and then he comes back around and says, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us, to offer sacrifice for us, to help us. Then he comes back in chapter 3 and says, make sure that you don't lose out on this. Make sure that you strive towards the rest that God has promised. But then in the end, he comes back around and says, but we have a great high priest who can help So you've got this balance between Make sure that you Chase after Jesus Because he can help Because he's done the work Because he's perfect We'll get much more Specifically into what he's done The sacrifices he's offered How he's done things differently Later But for now If you wrote down one note You can write down We need a mediator Let's pray God, I'm unable to make this. I'm unable to make this mean I am not the one who gives worth to these words. You are. And you even describe Jesus as the, the word of God. I only pray that I have represented what your word says And that you would then take it and do something with it. The more we read, the more we recognize that we need to be May this thought, may this message never grow cold in our hearts, in our minds, or on our lips, but cause us to understand it and, and to accept it, to put all of our faith, in it, all of our strength. Mediate for me, Jesus. Mediate for Christ-reconciled church. Go in front of God, because I can't. And please, intercede on my behalf. Intercede on our behalf.